Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Green Majority. I'm sorry, I was just in the mood this morning, mm. Stefan. That's a it's, it's a great intro. Thank you. How are you doing today, Stefan? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? All right. It's just Stefan and I here in the studio. Oh, and sorry, I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> uh, just Stefan and I here in the studio today. Uh, Edward, of course, is in the uh, the tech room. I said in the studio, Edward. He's like, <laughs> well, what about me? <laughs> We're just having fun here down here at uh, CIUT Studios as usual. Uh, it's a beautiful day outside today, or at least it is when we're recording this. So mm-hmm. if you're listening to this on the podcast or perhaps on our, one of our syndicates and it's bad weather, my apologies. Uh, we're not crazy. There, there, There's just this it, thing it called It was time. beautiful, we swear. Yeah, it was beautiful this day in this place. Uh, so I'm in a good mood. Stefan seems like he's in a good mood. Edward's got a big grin on his face. So we're doing great here at the CIUT studios. We're going to be talking about uh, two items today. Um, and a little bit, uh, the first one's a little bit different than usual. And I would consider that an oversight on our part. A mm. uh, little bit of a story we're going to be talking to in just a minute, uh, Josh Schlossberg, who is a freelance journalist and member of the Society of Environmental Journalists and editor of the Biomass Monitor. And the reason we're talking to him was actually was that uh, on our Twitter feed, uh, I send out a lot of uh, a retweet and share a lot of information. Uh, it is not always an endorsement. Some people put that on their profiles. I think that you can, for most people, you can take that as read. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, something we were promoting was talking about something having to do with uh, biomass energy and uh, an account at Biomass Monitor uh, responded and said, uh, you should be a little bit skeptical about what's in that article. That's the Coles Notes version of the conversation. So uh, we got talking because I was just sort of sharing it because it seemed interesting and I hadn't, uh, it's not something, an issue I'd, I dug into. Uh, since then, I've had a couple email exchanges with Josh and invited him on the program to talk a little bit more about biomass energy because it's it's something that uh, just sort of floats under the radar. It's there. It's not really a big environment thing. Environmentalists don't talk about it a lot. It's not, from our perspective, it's it's not really sort of talked about in a positive or negative light. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of there. Um, however, Joss thinks that that should not be the case, and he's going to join us in just a minute to tell us why. Uh, after that, however, I'll just tell you that we're going to be speaking to Mary Evelyn Tucker, who is a senior lecturer and research scholar at Yale University, uh, and actually one of the uh, professors uh, of a former volunteer, Joanna Defoe, who uh, oh. contacted us online and, and suggested that we speak to Mary Evelyn uh, about the Pope's encyclical. And Kevin Farmer, who's probably listening from home, mm-hmm. will be happy that I finally managed to pronounce that right. I'm going to say it twice just for good measure because I screwed it up so many times. Encyclical. Nice. Nice. Uh, so we'll be talking to Mary Evelyn a little bit later, uh, more so than just some of the big headline stuff. Uh, the reason we wanted to talk to her was we want to dig into a little bit more into the document because it's not just a position statement on climate change. Uh, there's a lot more information in it, A, and B, also, for uh, we want to sort of talk about the impact because, you know, from from our sort of North American removed secular point of view, and I mean ours and mine and Stefan's, mm-hmm. um, you know, it had a very dim- different impact than I think than if you are a church-going Catholic. And so we're – and there are a lot of them. Uh, so we're going to talk to her a little bit more about what else other than just climate change is in that uh, piece of writing and as well about the impact for a community that it was specifically targeted for. So I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be coming up about halfway through the program. But without further ado, do we have uh, Josh on the line? Are you there, Josh? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I was just outlining, uh, I don't know if you heard there, but uh, essentially the, the short version of, of how we met uh, uh, as uh, online in the uh, <laughs> us sharing something and you saying not so fast. Um, so and that started an interesting conversation. We had a little pre-chat uh, yesterday um, where we sort of uh, outlined a little bit what we wanted to talk about. Um, but so let's get into sort of some of the details and what some of your, uh, the reason why you've decided to devote uh, some time to uh, editing the biomass monitor in a little bit. And let's just talk about what biomass is. Let's just outline what we're talking about here, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So I was down in the States, and I had been working on forest issues for many years. 
And I was, uh, my original background was as an organizer. So I was noticing more and more that forests out in the western U.S. were being cut in order to fuel biomass facilities. And I realized more and more there was going to be a justification for doing so. And it ties into wildfire issues. There's some contention with that, certainly up in D.C. as well, and the beetle kill, et cetera. So anyway, I realized it was uh, a topic that was going to become more and more pertinent, especially as the world accepted, albeit grudgingly, the uh, impacts of climate change and the need to do something about it. So renewable energy is obviously the way forward for a lot of people. Solar and wind, which is what you usually think of when you say the term renewable energy, at least down in the States, however, the number one source of renewable energy, now this is for electricity, heating, and liquid transportation fuels, is actually bioenergy. So not just burning trees, but also manure, plants. Garbage is considered biomass energy to make things even more complicated and tricky. Um, yet again, when any, anyone supports renewable energy, they care about climate change, they think that they're subsidizing one form of energy, what they're often subsidizing is the cutting and burning of forests to that end. So I realized this was something that was just not just a topic that interested me because it fell in the intersection of energy and climate change and the environment and uh, environmental justice issues. But it was something that wasn't really being covered by the mainstream media hardly at all. And it was something that was definitely falling under the radars of most environmental groups. So again, I started as an organizer, and I did work on this topic to point out basically what was being missed, to point out the drawbacks. And then over time, I evolved my role into just writing objectively, as objectively as possible, on this topic to get the pros and the cons out there, and again, to tell the stories that are falling through the cracks. And a lot of the times, the media, when they report on biomass energy, they sort of just mouth the press releases of industry. And that's certainly one side of the story. Industry says, hey, this is going to help us get through climate change. Um, we're doing a good thing for a forest. There's hardly any pollution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the environmental voices weren't very loud on it, and there's various reasons for that. Um, nevertheless, I thought I could do my part by putting out the best science and perspectives on this topic in my publication, The Biomass Monitor, which you can find at thebiomassmonitor.org. We do focus primarily in the U.S., however, not exclusively. So we have run some articles about uh, biomass energy stuff internationally, including in Canada. Um, there is a facility up in uh, Halifax in Nova Scotia that has been causing some consternation. And we've also run stuff about D.C. as well, because there are several biomass facilities biomass power facilities up in D.C., and there are several more uh, that are planned. So that's definitely something folks should be paying attention to. So, Josh, I want to get into, in just one second, we're going to get into some of the, you know, the, the advantages and disadvantages of biomass uh, energy, because, of, of course, you're, you're not saying, and, and I, don't, I don't think anyone is, is really saying, that, you know, this, is, this technology is sort of by definition bad, and we shouldn't have any of it, and, and you know, and it's evil technology, and, you know, get rid of it or anything like that. It's, it's, it's more a case, and, and the case that you're making was that uh, the reality of what it looks like on paper and how it's been playing out in industry is different. 
uh, and that some of the claims maybe should be viewed a little bit more skeptically uh, and that maybe we should there just needs to be a closer eye on this issue. Uh, but just before we get to that, I think there, there's one thing there that, that we've talked about on this program a lot. I'd like you to, to unpack a little bit more, uh, which is, uh, as you said, it's it's going under the radar in that it's in two ways. One in that uh, in that a lot of journalism about it is being very uncritical. And, and, and we've talked on this program before a lot about uh, how that's just a general problem with the media these days with being a sort of super corporate media. Uh, a lot of the work tends to be, you know, receive press release from X corporation, change a few words and the bingo bango, you've got a new article. Um, but also part of it is a lot of is, is, is ignorance, I think. So can you just talk a little bit about, you know, why aren't you thinking we're hearing it? So we've got, we've got those inherent problems with modern media, uh, granted. Um, but sort of why else do you think, because you mentioned there are a couple other things. Like I, I am, you know, we spend a lot of time here on the show looking at environmental issues. And this is something that even for me um, very much fly, flies under the radar. And why do you think that is that even, you know, journalistic problems aside, why is it that, that really nobody is talking about this? Well, that's a very good question, and I would have several answers for that, but I, I think it really comes down to this. So folks expect environmental groups to be bringing up the issues of the day, anything that could potentially affect their health, that could be disturbing the landscape, um, that could be adding to climate change. Uh, for many years, environmental groups were actually very large promoters of pretty much every form of biomass energy. Uh, the reason was because folks were saying, hey, fossil fuels, causing climate change, pollution, we need to get off fossil fuels, we need to get off nuclear power. So, therefore, we're going to advocate for anything that isn't that. So that's what happened for many, many years. Then over time, there are some of the smaller grassroots groups, and this is around the U.S., um, and also there's a bit in Canada and the U.K. is where the leading groups were. They started calling attention to the negative impacts of biomass energy. So some of the forest impacts, the air pollution impacts, and the climate impacts. And in a sense, that shamed some of these larger environmental groups into taking a closer look at this issue. And then what happened over time was kind of these obvious statements that cutting trees that absorb carbon and then burning them will release that carbon to the atmosphere. It's pretty much you know, just eighth-grade earth science. Um, that The science started coming in. More and more scientists were researching this and finding that, yes, the obvious is true. So a lot of these, these environmental groups have backtracked on their previous claims that biomass energy is a good thing. However, as you can imagine, they're not trumpeting their 180-degree um, decision very loudly because that makes them seem somewhat hypocritical and it also calls attention to the fact that they had been promoting something that in the past wasn't so great. So in my opinion, again, this is my perspective based on somebody who used to be an organizer who worked from groups that were more mainstream to two harder stance groups. So that gives me kind of that perspective of what goes on in their minds. Um, I think that there is a a bit of unwillingness to accept that they were wrong in the past, so they don't necessarily want to come out and say too much about it now. Further, we can make it even more complicated. The majority of the funding for these organizations comes from grants that are private foundations that are typically um, sourcing their funding from large corporations. So the Pew Charitable Trust is one of the biggest uh, funders of environmental groups in the U.S., and their money originally came from the Sun Oil Company. So we're talking about big business are the ones that are supporting environmental groups. As you can imagine, these 
foundations typically will support the groups that aren't necessarily taking too radical or hard stances on really anything. So that's the way it works out. And if there isn't a lot of funding and interest for opposing biomass energy, these groups are going to downplay it, even though more and more, most of these groups have now come out in one way, shape, or form against certain forms of biomass energy, at least. And then I would say that one of the, the other main aspects is a lot of the environmental groups in the U.S. are sort of default supporters of the Democratic Party. That's sort of been like, oh, if you're an environmentalist, you're a Democrat, even though, yes, clearly a lot of Democrats in the U.S. are supporters of the environment. However, a lot of bad environmental policy that has impacted uh, the environment has been pushed forward by Democrats. Mm. So Democrats are one of the largest pushes for doing something about climate change and renewable energy. They could be pushing for a lot more distributed energy, which is you know smaller scale renewable energy as opposed to these massive power plants. But in order for the Democrats to make their promises true about doing something about climate change, or at least making it look like they're doing something about climate change, they need to deliver. And that delivery is biomass energy because it's low-hanging fruit. You can just cut down a bunch of forests and sometimes even just convert a coal plant into burning a little bit of trees, and then it makes it seem like all of a sudden you're being very green. So the environmental groups don't want to contradict the Democrats, and therefore, even though their policy, if you read in the bowels of their website, is opposed to biomass energy, you won't typically hear them saying much about it, and if you do hear them saying something, they'll be very nuanced about it. So that's my perspective on why that is. And it's uh, it, it, that totally totally makes sense from from what I know of what's been happening uh, in in American politics. In Canadian politics, we have a slightly different uh, dynamic, of course, because the this, the same stereotype uh, whether you know to what extent it's it's true to an extent, but to what extent it's true, you know, will will vary based on uh, time and opinion. Um, but you know, but the same dynamic of you know it tends to be the quote unquote left that tends to be associated with the environment. Uh, but up here we have you know three uh, quote unquote left major political parties at a federal level. So uh, there, there tends to be less sort of uh, association with a specific party because there's, you know, three left parties you could be associated with. So a lot of the organizations here tend to just try and stay away from it, some of it for, for legal reasons around their, their status. But uh, it also just tends to be sort of this, this silent agreement that it's in poor taste uh, to try and uh, – and I think it's an important strategic decision to stay away from any political party specifically. Uh, however, what that happens, though, is that there there tends to be very uh, the similar effect, which is that we have very un, uncritical assessment of proposals of policy before they uh, go in, unless it's being done by the party that currently holds uh, power. So we end up with, through a very different means, a very, very similar situation, a very similar dynamic, I think. Uh, so, leaving the uh, leaving the country based politics aside for a moment, let's get into uh, sort of what the meat uh, and potatoes, if you will, of the point of the biomass monitor is, which is as you were articulating there, it's it's not supposed to be a list of you know reasons why biomass energy is evil, um, but it's sort of a it's the dig deeper you know this is a little bit more complicated than you might realize sort of. Uh, uh, sort of assessment of articles and facts and stuff. So can you just give us here, we've got about uh, four minutes left here. Uh, can you just give us an overview of the types of stuff that's in there, what some of the advantages, some of the disadvantages, and maybe, maybe you've, got, uh, you've got Canadian's ears here for, for the next five minutes or so, if you want to just tell us, you know, what do we need to know that we don't know about biomass energy? Sure. Well, industry always states the obvious, and the most 
would say, beneficial aspects. So the pros that are put out there loud and clear about biomass energy are, number one, that it's a local source. So you don't necessarily have to go far to, you know, pipe in some oil or truck in some natural gas. That's pretty apparent. And then the fact that it's cheaper in that you can often source from forests in a cheaper way than necessarily, you know, mining minerals to create solar panels, et cetera. So there's definitely some validity to that. Um, of course, even those claims have the other side, which is that although it's local, uh, there is a limited resource in the forest. So how much that's going to be sourced really is the heart of the matter. And once you build a facility, so it's kind of like if you build a facility, they will cut. So once a facility is in existence that has a demand, there's going to be basically everything that can be done as possible to keep feeding that facility. And that includes cutting down entire trees. I've documented that many times down in the U.S. Uh, folks, I believe it's the Ecology Center in Nova Scotia have documented that for the uh, Halifax biomass facility. So that's, that's the dark side of that. And then when it comes down to the cost, sure, in many ways that's cheaper to uh, procure local wood, but at the same time there's massive subsidies that are often in place to do so. So taxpayers are financing that, and if it was so cheap and competitive, they wouldn't necessarily have to do that. So the other side of it is the to create these biomass facilities and the electricity from it is quite expensive. It's almost up there with nuclear power is the way the research shows. So it's not exactly a cheap form of energy to create. It's cheaper to access. And sure, maybe if you're burning it in your wood stove, that's definitely cheaper. But then, of course, the negatives, you know, keep going a bit there with the health impact, you know, the climate impact. So you can look at the health impact and you say there's better filtration, there's more uh, pollution control technology than there used to be. So that would be a pro. On the other side of it is there's still pollutants that are being emitted. So all the same pollutants that are emitted from burning fossil fuels are emitted from burning biomass energy. And because it's such a energy poor source, as in coal, and this is certainly not an endorsement of coal, this is just the fact, when you burn coal, it's very dense. Um, wood is not so dense, and there's a lot of water and moisture in there. So you have to burn more material to get the same amount of energy, which means more pollution per unit of energy generated. So there's concerns with that. There's all sorts of pollutants like particulate matter, which is a great concern with biomass energy, and that causes lung disease. There's volatile organic compounds which are carcinogenic. The list does go on. So pros and cons there. Then you go into the carbon dioxide argument, which people could talk about forever because it's made needlessly complicated. Uh, so the biomass industry said, hey, this is great because the trees die over periods of decades or centuries and release that carbon dioxide back to the environment. So it's part of the biogenic carbon cycle. All we're doing is sort of borrowing from that. that so that's fine. It, it's, it's a negative impact on the climate, as in uh, it's neutral. It's, it's carbon neutral is what they're saying. So there's no impact. But you look at it from another perspective, and this carbon would have been locked in the trees for decades to centuries. Even over time, as it degrades into the soil, it's locked into the soil for a while. And what we're doing instead is you cut a tree down, you chip it up, you're sending that pulse of carbon immediately into the atmosphere. And perhaps over time, when that little tree 
tree, that little sapling grows back into a 150-year-old tree, that carbon will be re-sequestered. However, that's uncertain. You can't guarantee that forest will grow again, especially with soil fertility rates, etc. And the real issue is that do we have enough time to sit around for, you know, decades to centuries to wait for that CO2, that carbon, to be reabsorbed? When all the world's top scientists working on climate change said, we need to deal with that now to reduce emissions. So the idea that burning trees, our best climate buffer for energy, is going to solve the climate change issue is a bit dubious. Yeah, and I think the the one excellent case of that you're saying you know well this carbon's going to be burned anyway. Well, the, there's a whole bunch of wood from the forests that were destroyed by the pine wood beetle in uh, in BC that they used uh, the the wood from these damaged trees that are otherwise unproductive uh, to build this like really awesome stadium, and that's not burning it. <laughs> so there's definitely other uses for this wood. Uh, I'm afraid we are out of time, Josh, uh, but I want to thank you very much for your time and uh, and let our listeners know that uh, you've been uh, very kind to answer and very happy to answer questions. Uh, so we'll have a link to your website. Uh, people can look it over for themselves. If they have questions, concerns, if they disagree with you and want to want to pick your brain a little bit more, uh, I will tell, I'll let our listeners know that Josh has been very happy to interact with people and answer questions. So uh, you'll be able Absolutely. to reach him uh, online at Biomass Monitor, and we will have a link to your website on our show post uh, after the show today. Thank you again for your time thank you take care all right have a great day so we're going to be back in uh, two minutes we're going to go to a music break in just a second but really quickly stefan's got a, our uh, weekly announcements what's up stefan yeah so uh well a with climate cartoons are probably coming out now, probably i'd say next week mm-hmm. got a new one next week that'll be great looking forward to that and, and we're, we're trying to rush another one after that too because yep. uh we were very nicely gifted a free full page ad by alternatives journal oh it's true two thousand dollar value who doesn't love those guys yeah seriously uh this is an entirely unpaid endorsement for alternatives journal. <laughs> no they're just they're super nice guys they put out a great magazine and they've been very 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 kind to us so we're going to try and get out a couple uh, we're going to be in the in the early august episode and uh for the ad and so we're going to have try and have not only this one but maybe even one more by that time yeah for sure uh and also of course uh the the weekly pitch uh for the wonderful t-shirt that i am actually currently wearing uh i was going to say you looked somehow just mysteriously more sophisticated right today, and it is the shirt it's all the shirt uh and and one way so there's many ways you can get this of course uh one of the ways uh is that we is that you are listening to this right now uh, and we want to know your opinions. I actually know there are people listening to this because a friend of mine, I uh, give a shout out to Andrew. I guess he listens to this while repairing cars, cool. which I think is great. Uh, and I was talking to him. And, and is he, he repairing them into electric cars? I don't know. Oh. Well, I'll ask him next time. Ask him. Andrew. Uh, Andrew, yeah, are you doing that? You. Let me know. Um, the, uh, but what a, one of the ways is actually because we do have listeners that are listening to this right now. Uh, we can take our survey and let us know how we can be better because that's something that we always want to do. Uh, and that will enter you automatically into the chance of opportunity to win one of these fantastic shirts, uh, which is you can find on our website greenmajority.ca yes and there's a big button right at the top that says t-shirts there's three different ways to get them and uh, and there's different uh, things you can do uh, so if you go to greenmajority.ca click on the button right at the top that says t-shirts it will uh, it will give you the information about the three different ways you can get a hold of one uh, two of them are free there you go pretty good uh, so we're going to go to our music break Edward tell us what we're going to listen to hello we got a classic Canadian song Summer of 69 by Brian Adams Woo, take it away <laughs> Got my first real six string Bought it at the five and done Played it till my fingers bled Was a summer of 69 Me and some guys from school Had a band and we tried real hard Jimmy quit, Jody got married I should've known we'd never get far
And we are back. You're listening here to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. You may also be listening on one of our partner stations. Community stations across the country carry this program. If you're listening on one of them, thank you. And thank mm-hmm. your station for also carrying our program. You could also be listening on a podcast. And then thank you for having the internet. <laughs> and and the good taste to yes. listen to The Green Majority podcast. Uh, I would like to uh, invite uh, now our next guest on the show. Uh, it was recommended by a former volunteer, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Our guest is Mary Evelyn Tucker, who is a senior lecturer and research scholar at the Yale University, where she has appointments in the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, as well as Divinity School and the Department of Religious Studies. Welcome to the program, Mary Evelyn. Thank you so much. Uh, It's uh, it's our pleasure to have you on here because uh, we had actually a very quick uh, very quick and very lightly researched conversation about this right when it was happening. Uh, and as I said, a, a former volunteer suggested that we talk to you uh, because I think it is very much a topic that deserves a little bit more of a detailed explanation. And I'm very thankful that, that you were able to give your time to come and, and help us explore this topic in a little bit more depth. Uh, and part of that was that... Um, you know, from the from the point of view of just me personally, uh, as a secular person, this sort of you know uh, you know you realize the the gravitas that the Pope has, um, but it's sort of you know it's still sort of uh, from my perspective as someone who isn't part of the, the Catholic Church, it was sort of like you know it's like a position paper, and so I didn't sort of give it I think in my in my own mind the the potential gravitas of the fact that there is you know, uh, 1.2, I think, something like that, billion Catholics in the world who likely many of them, if not most of them, uh, will take this very, very seriously. Um, so I would like it if you would just kindly start with um, just to tell us a little bit about, uh, because I, had, I hadn't before this story came around even heard of an encyclical before. Can you tell us a little bit about just what it is that we're discussing here? What, what is the encyclical? Sure, and uh, thanks for having me. This is a very important moment, I think, uh, actually for the planet. Um, and that's because, uh, to pick up your point, there's 1.2 billion Catholics, but there's also another billion Christians altogether with Protestants and Orthodox and so on. So approximately 2 billion people um, in just the Christian faith uh, will be deeply affected by this. But an encyclical is a letter that comes from sort of the highest uh, authority, the papal authority of the Church. And the uh, point is that it, it's a teaching document which uh, reaches around the world um, to all the churches. But as well, it actually has, this one is addressed uh, to all people on the planet. And because Francis is the kind of remarkable, outgoing, humble, <laughs> uh, compassionate person that he is, um, many of us think that this will have even more effect. And that's been the case because we run the Forum on Religion and Ecology at Yale, which is about a 20-year project on how the world's religion um, can contribute to environmental ethics coming from the Asian religions or indigenous religions as well as the, the Western religions. And already Jewish groups have um, come to the plate with their statements certainly over the last 20 years, but right now they're responding to the encyclical uh, in very vibrant ways, rabbis and so on, and the Islamic world is coming up with their own special response to the encyclical. So it's, um, it's a moment where the moral, <laughs> the, the moral imperative of the environment and climate change is uh, what's uh, put forward for the whole world to see in a new and a fresh way. 
and I, and I think that's one of the really important points. And uh, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk extremely briefly right at the end of the interview about some of the more goofy criticisms. But one of the criticisms that's been leveled that I think is very relevant to the point that you just made was you know the, this idea of blending environmentalism and and religion in general is new. And and that's as you just outlined is nonsense. They're basically whether we're talking about some of the major established and sort of modern religions, so Islam and Judaism and Christianity, uh, including uh, also uh, First Nations and Native peoples' religions are are very much, uh, if if not more so, uh, based on naturalistic, plus also just sort of more what are considered now almost like folk traditions, like paganism and stuff like that. Basically, it doesn't matter where you look, pretty much, I think, exclusively every single spiritual uh, uh, religious outlook on life has included some deep connection to the earth in it, and it really it was more about the poor re-emphasizing that in our modern age rather than it is creating this sort of new partnership. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, uh, well put, and I think that's what we were trying to do uh, when we started these conferences at Harvard in the mid-90s for three years. We surveyed the world's religions and their views of nature and, and their practices and so on, and now there's 10 volumes that Harvard published, and we brought this work to um, Yale, and we were trying to blend of what we've called engaged scholarship with the activism of, of projects on the ground. So there's religious environmentalism of uh, the Abrahamic traditions in Israel um, restoring the Jordan River. There's Buddhist monks in Thailand uh, preserving forests. There's obviously hundreds of native peoples, both in North and South America and other parts of the world, trying to preserve their forests and their wetlands and, and so on and so forth. And largely from this profound sense, as you've suggested, that there's a, a spiritual response to nature, and therefore this sense that it's it's ethically important to care for it is, for I think many of us, somewhat obvious. And I want to say very importantly, though, that I think the environmental movement, ranging from thinkers like Thoreau and, and Emerson and the Transcendentalists, but you know, through the, the whole 20th century of the American environmental movement and, and elsewhere, I think this same sensibility is very widespread. It might not be associated with a particular religion. So I think we can speak of eco-spirituality, you know, broadly speaking, and, and I would also certainly want to say religions have their problems as well as their promise, and no one can deny the very problematic side of, of religions in terms of intolerance and so on and so forth. But the, the opening here is to say that science and policy and economics and technology are absolutely necessary for environmental problems pointing towards, you know, understanding them and pointing towards solutions. But without culture, ethics, religion, and spirituality, we may not be able to quite manage the, um, the will for change and the long-term sustaining of that um, without um, breaking down into despair or disempowerment or burnout uh, may just be this contribution of a religious, spiritual, ethical uh, perspective. And that is the hope here, especially as... The Pope takes this forward, you know, yesterday he was in Bolivia, and he's uh, radically criticizing the, the destroying of the uh, rainforest there. He's supporting indigenous peoples there. He's saying unfettered capitalism is totally problematic. He's supporting a new type of globalization. So this has been the work of progressive thinkers, leaders, groups, NGOs all over the world. So it's astonishing 
and gratifying with the folks that's picking up on the work of many, many people that's preceded this moment. And, and I think that was that was really very apt the way you just put that because I think I think a lot of the reason that we're we're seeing some of the the some of the the limited I think extremely limited compared to the people that are really excited and 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 really em, emboldened and impassioned by uh, this piece. <clears throat> Some of the criticism uh, was just around uh, the idea of people, I think, just frankly, aren't used to hearing the word progressive and and ahead of a major religion in the same sentence. And and I don't mean I don't mean that to be disrespectful uh, to anyone. It's just it just seems to be the case. Yeah, well, I think that's right, too. And and very perceptive. I mean, you know, frankly, I grew up in very progressive social justice liberal-oriented Catholicism, and I was deeply involved in the civil rights movement and the anti-Vietnam War here in the States and so on. And I think that there are many theologians in Canada who are eco-theologians, you know, like Heather Eaton at at St. Paul's in Ottawa and Steve Sharper in Toronto and Anne-Marie Dalton and Steve Dunn. These are people who have that same kind of progressive sensibility that ecology and justice are two sides of the same coin, people and the planet. Um, and this sensibility is at the heart of this encyclical. I mean, when Francis is speaking about integral ecology, he is actually uh, using a term that Thomas Berry, a very progressive Catholic thinker, um, used years and years ago. And uh, that notion that we have to um, take care of the ecosystems of the planet, which, again, environmental groups have been doing, but we also have to integrate humans, and we've got to uh, critique economic systems that are not leading to to equity and justice and fairness and right livelihood and so on. So progressive religious thinking um, is in all of the traditions, I would say. Look at Gandhi. Nonviolence comes from Hinduism, Ahimsa. That changed a whole continent and in fact the world. Um, so these are progressive ideas that continue to influence the present and that same sensibility that went into the civil rights movement of, of spiritual nonviolent action is what's happening in, in many parts of the world. Naomi Klein calls it blockadia. The First Nations people in the Pacific Northwest and Alberta and, and here in the States are doing amazing work in this regard. So progressive <laughs> doesn't have to be only secular that's the point. <laughs> and so I, i'm i'm actually looking at the english translation off the vatican's uh, website of the encyclical right now uh there's 246 points uh it is longer than the i most of the reading i do is news articles so it's a bit longer than what i'm used to reading frankly uh but i think yep. every inch of it is is worth having a look over and we will post a link uh, both to your uh, website over at yale and directly to the English translation uh, for people off the website to have a look at. Please do go and have a look at it. Uh, and what one of the things that really struck me, and, and I wonder if I can ask you to comment on this, is that it reads like somebody took a graduate science paper and blended it with a sermon. Like it's 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 neither a scientific paper nor is it a sermon. It's 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 been the two have been fused, and it's really interesting to see. You know, language about um, the ethical implications of biotechnology and cloning, right along, you know, say, you know, Saint Francis or Saint Peter or something. It's just—it's yeah. a fascinating read for a number of reasons. <laughs> yeah, well, I love that. Um, you know, you've got really good points here, and that what I think fascinating as well is this is, even though it's long, it's relatively easy read if you take it in small bites. You know, you just like, wow, this is this is an interesting. 
um, you know, couple points here on as he begins with these major issues, as you say, climate change, biodiversity, water, pollution. He takes all the major environmental art, um, issues and challenges and highlights the science, but also says, why is this a human issue? Why is this a moral issue? And I think that's a huge contribution. Um, and what I love is a lot of, of folks have gotten climate change as as the, envir- as the environment or the environmental issue. But, you know, it's, it's much broader. It's complex. They're all interrelated. And he's foregrounding this work of many people on the, a variety of these issues. And, of, of course, um, there has to be this sensibility that the scientific facts alone, the policy papers alone, are not changing um, what's happening. And that's why Gus Beth, who was the past dean at the school here at Forestry and Environmental Studies, wanted the religion and ecology to come to the school, and why our present dean, a very noted botanist, head of Kew Botanical Gardens in the U.K. and the Field Museum in Chicago, is very, very supportive of uh, this issue and began the panel we had at Yale on the encyclical in April to say these are no longer issues of science alone. These are moral issues. That's a major shift. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and uh, so chapter one, as I said, it's 246 points. Chapter one, the first uh, chapter title, um, it, the just the title of it, even just alone, just, just struck me, uh, which is what is happening to our common home. Uh, I'm a big yeah. fan of good word choice. Uh, and, yeah. and that really struck me. And I want to I, I wanna read something, just one sentence out of uh, the, something under that subtitle. And I also want to underline the fact that uh, I did not choose this line ahead of time. I actually, my eyes just fell on this as we were speaking right now. So the, this this document is full of amazing quotes like this. So I just want to read this one sentence and then I'll, and then I'll ask you to, uh, to comment on it. Our goal is not to amass information or to satisfy curiosity, but rather to become painfully aware, to dare to turn what is happening to the world into our own personal suffering, and thus to discover what each of us can do about it. To which the only thing yeah. I would add is, boom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. real, it really is a powerful document. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is powerful, I agree. And you know what's fascinating? Uh, first of all, I love that line. I agree there are many quotable lines. You look on the internet and it's just, there's just tons of quotes now from the encyclical. I love that, though, because it is the case that, you know, I think what's so amazing about Francis is he identifies with the suffering clearly of the poor, the outcast, and so on. If I was just listening last night to his speech in Brazil, Bolivia. You can feel the compassion in the voice. It's amazing. And so this sense of suffering, you see, is one of his entries into this issue, because he's saying as Leonardo Bastos, one of the leading liberation theologians in Brazil, says, the cry of the earth, the cry of the poor, is one cry. And I think we are all suffering this loss of species, this degradation of ecosystems, this um, horrendous loss of of water, droughts, and and so on. I mean, what's happened in India and Pakistan this summer, thousands of people dying from the heat. I mean, how can we not be human and say this suffering all over the planet is immense, it's not going away, we have to do something about it. And again, it's why uh, in the First Nation peoples, people who are standing up to this against great odds are, to me, tremendous heroes, the blockadia efforts all over the world. And I just wanted to add one quick thing, and that is the Ecological Society of America, the largest 
Society for Ecologists, I think on the planet, probably 10,000 members, has just endorsed the encyclical. You can go to their website, their past president, their present president, and their incoming president has done this endorsement of the importance of the encyclical. This is a new meeting of science and ethics, you see, ecology and values, um, that has never had this possibility before for real transformation. It's a historic moment, I think. All right, if you're just tuning in uh, here to The Green Majority, we're speaking to Mary Evelyn Tucker from Yale University. Mary Evelyn, we're, we're running a little bit short on time, and I have two questions I really wanted to ask you uh, yet, and one is based on the other, so I can't skip one. Uh, I'll just ask you if you can uh, maybe comment on them uh, each briefly. Uh, the first one is was that I, I observed that there does seem to be a little bit of a tone change uh, from sort of traditional or at least recent historical positions that the Catholic Church has taken. Uh, a very famous uh, Catholic figure that everyone will know who wasn't a pope, of course, was Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa was very famous for uh, the comforting of the poor. Uh, and this is very different. Pope Francis has gone out and said, we should take, uh, you know, as it, you know, as many major religions do, but specifically the Catholic Church has been very, very big always on charity and taking care of the poor. But this seems to me to be the first time that the Pope ever said, and it's those guys' fault, and pointing the finger at capitalism and greed. And this seems to me to be a big tone change. Am I misreading this? Well, actually... Um, yes and no. I would say Catholic social justice teachings for the last hundred years have, have totally advocated for the poor, the outcast, the worker, starting in 1898, Leo's encyclical, Rerum Novarum, was all about the workers and justice and the right for union. So this is in a long tradition. I think what's new, for sure, is linking it powerfully to you know, what we're calling now eco-justice people and planet. So um, Francis is elevating the suffering of the poor. Benedict before him did it as well, but this is in a robust and, as I would say at times, and you have said, in a poetic way that calls us to action. It's very powerful. All right. And then the, the very last quick question for you, which I, I just feel like I, I just have to mention, but it's, it's certainly not the biggest part of this by, by any means, but just interesting, of course, on that point of and real emphasis on and, and here's, you know, pointing the finger a little bit about here's the people causing the problem and, and we need to address these specific issues to fix this uh, has been yeah. the reaction of the Republican Party uh, and the, in the, uh, the candidates running up to the 2016 American elections who have now, you know, are, are traditionally self-branded uh, many times. And if not, they've been labeled otherwise as the quote unquote party of God, of course, the right wing, you know, uh, who've now done a full 180 and, and decided because because of this, because he's not just talking about the poor, but we're talking about the poor and it's, you know, things like corporations and a lot of the people that these Republicans get their money from, um, that now they've suddenly turned around and decided to say, oh, keep religion out of politics. Uh, it's not a big issue, but I just wanted to get a brief comment from you on that point. No, it is. It's very important. And, um, but, you know, I think the long-term historical landmark that we're witnessing is going to so go over the heads of even this political um, backwater Republican Party. <laughs> but I think we will see Francis come to the U.N., speak in September. He will address the houses of the joint session of Congress and so on. And I think there's no doubt he is putting on the table this sense of unfettered, mean-spirited capitalism, of the greed of the 1% and the Occupy movement that really held um, that up, he is highlighting that and saying, yes, um, you are responsible for the suffering of millions of people around the world unless 
you move the system towards the ability to deliver equitable and just and ecologically uh, flourishing systems for the planet. If you if capitalism is going to continue to destroy the planet, uh, this is why Naomi Klein was invited to the Vatican just recently. If capitalism destroys the planet, it should also <laughs> not just be transformed, but r- radically changed and reformed. And that is the message of the Pope. It's the message of the globalization movement, for sure. And many, many people have been part of this. Now it has a public voice, it has a document, and it's on the agenda for the foreseeable future. It's very exciting. Well, if nothing else, it means that, uh, you know, when uh, people say, you know, God wants us to drill the Arctic, we can say, no, he doesn't, and I have it in writing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, yeah. this was well, actually, a... Sorry, go ahead. People up here in New York State are already reading from the encyclical to protest the potential of gas being stored in the Finger Lake region uh, and so on. So it's already happening. Awesome. Well, I, I wish we had more time, but unfortunately don't. I want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, again, we've been speaking to Mary Evelyn Tucker, uh, the Senior Lecturer and Research Scholar at Yale University, uh, as well as appointments with the School of Forestry, Environmental Studies, and the Divinity School and Department of Relig- Religious Studies. Thank you so much for your time today. Great, and I hope you look at our website, Forum on Religion and Ecology. Thank you so much. Thanks Absolutely. A lot. Have a great day. And our, our listeners can, of course, find links to the English translation of the, the encyclical uh, and the uh, and that website as well on the show post. Uh, quickly, before we go to our music break, uh, Stefan, you, what are you going to give us when we come back? I'm going to give us an ode to climate trolls. That sounds amazing. Ode to climate trolls coming right up after this music break. And Edward, what are we going to listen to? All right. We got the backing band for Bob Dylan, The Band. Uh, this is Up on Crickle Creek.
I hate to interrupt, interrupt, interrupt. Where'd that come from? I hate to interrupt all this great music that Edward keeps putting on for us. But we have a show to do. It's true, and we want to hear the the Ode to Climate Troll. So, as always, in, mm-hmm. in fact, in case I hadn't mentioned this recently, uh, there is a shocking amount of information that I put on the website post. If there is any, ever ever anything at all that you're listening to this show and you wonder, I wonder. What song that was, where that article was, did I miss the person's name? I spend about four hours, actually, after the show, uploading all of that information to the website. So please do. Go and check it out. And if for no other reason, uh, try and uh, take one of the two of three ways that you can win uh, a climate uh, shirt for free. Yeah, there you go. But uh, without further ado, we have about uh, eight minutes left now. Yep. Uh, Stefan, the floor is yours for an ode to climate trolls. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so this, so I'll, I'll give it a backstory before I actually go through the ode uh, very quickly, uh, which was that, of course, last Sunday was the uh, March for Jobs, Justice, and Climate. 10,000 people marched through the streets of Toronto. It was a breathtaking uh, uh, experience. There was the, the amount of solidarity and good vibes there was just Fantastic! Uh, like as far as you know, momentum building experience, I think you could could not could not have asked for anything better. Uh, but of course, and if you want to see videos, there's there's a great uh, wrap up video that was just the 350.org just put out, which I highly recommend. Uh, but what also was there uh, were a ton of climate trolls. If you actually were watching following the Twitter feed, which I sort of was because I was tweeting out about this stuff, uh, uh, it was. It was shocking the number of people who had taken to Twitter who obviously weren't there, uh, but who had taken to Twitter to sort of to mock the mock the whole thing. Uh, and of course, the classic, if, if you've ever been on the internet or if you're from the internet, as some people may say, <laughs> um, uh, you know the, you know the term, don't feed the trolls, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, which is a great term. Advice uh, I usually follow. Yes, exactly. It's, it's kind of like don't read the comments. It's advice you usually follow until you make that mistake and then you get in a wormhole and you have to drag yourself out three days later. Um, a little bit like meth, I hear. <laughs> uh, but so, so what I want to say was, so, so what, so, but actually after when there were some people, so of course there's, I'm not going to mention any actual names people because I don't want to give them any credit yeah. uh, but of course there were that there would were, be feeding the trolls yeah, feeding the trolls exactly uh, but there was you know there was, there was one guy who was going around interviewing everyone uh, trying to like, do attack interviews at, at, at the march uh, and, and all this sort of stuff uh, and so that, I saw that and at the very end of the day um, what sort of inspired the actual bit was at the end of March uh, one of the people who was serving the food uh, was this man uh, it was a bearded man in a dress uh, it was a sundress. He looked way more comfortable than everyone else. It's 30 degrees out. Uh, it was just, he was, he was the coolest looking guy. Uh, and it was just fantastic. And then, so I was, let's, we moved on. And then when I got home, I noticed one of the climate trolls had taken a picture of him and posted it as a way to sort of, sort of basically be like, look, these people aren't serious. Uh, using this image of this man as a reason to, to discount us uh, as, as climate activists. Which is offensive for now three reasons. Exactly. Offensive for so many reasons. And what I, but what I, what, what it led me to was, uh, was this piece. So I'm now going to read an ode to climate trolls. I love you. I really do. I love you. I love that you see our diversity as inconsistency. I love that you see our our inclusivity as madness. I love that you descend on our demonstrations like wasps on sugar. So eager to prove yourselves as the righteous warriors that you attack anyone you think couldn't handle your abrasive stinging questions. I love you, climate trolls, but I do not give you the benefit of the doubt that you chose a young woman for your assault by accident. And so when she rose up and calmly knocked you down point by point, I relished the moment. I love that all your criticisms so badly miss the mark. Yes, we are not perfect. Yes, we have so much work to do. 
to put to truly put justice first to ensure that the world we're trying to create does not repeat the horrendous injustices of of our colonial past to ensure our movement is a movement that aims to end oppression of all kinds but still climate trolls i love you i love you because in your stoic refusal to see humanity as anything but black and white, in your demands that science bend to your worldview, in your unabashed attempts to shout down anyone who disagrees with you, I see how far we've come. That was great. <laughs> uh, and it's just, so it, was, it was just one of the things where it's like, what it really was for me was this moment of, oh, you're just an awful person. <laughs> I don't have to listen to you at all. Yeah. It's just, it, it, it's, it's, it was it was a refreshing moment to sort of see like to see that a little bit. It's like we'll discuss, you know, I'll, I'm happy to discuss any type of ways of the best way to deal with climate change. Uh, but if your best way is to start mocking people who go to actually fight climate change, you're a useless, useless person doing negative things in the world, and I don't have to deal with you. Yeah, <laughs> that was really fabulous. Now, did you write that? Yes. Yes, that was very good. Uh, a big fan. So maybe Stefan, you're going to put the copy of that on the on the website yeah, as well because because yeah, sure. uh, that was great. <laughs> Thank you very much, Stefan. So we're down to about three minutes now, and I there was a, this was actually a busy news week, but I was just really keen on talking to our guests. Uh, I, I I honestly wish I had much more time to talk to, uh, especially our last guest, because I think we could go on as again. There's there's such a huge document mm-hmm. that we could have spent hours talking about it. Maybe we'll come back. Uh, Mary Evelyn actually suggested one of the other p- people that she mentioned there at the end as as other good resources. She actually recommended we talk to them as well so maybe i'll have them on at some point as well we can dig a little bit more into this i uh, frankly i think we'll be talking about this for quite some time just as a warning mm-hmm. uh not every show but it's it's definitely worth coming back to and again i do encourage you to read it so quickly what we're going to do is uh we have about two minutes uh there, i'm just going to read some headlines and then if we can we'll comment on something really quickly so news items you can find on the website where exxon knew of climate change in 1981 email says but funded deniers for 27 more years <laughs> who's surprised nobody <laughs> i added the last part nice. billions in gas projects stranded by climate change uh, action uh, climate denial linked to conspiratorial thinking, says new study. Also not shocked. U.S. firm sues Canada for $10.5 billion over waters. That's a hideous story that you're going to want to read if you feel like being angry than you currently are. Uh, Edelman, which is a giant PR firm, loses executives and clients over climate change stance. Basically, uh, yeah, yeah, we're really ethical. We're just uh, we're just going to we're just going to. Yeah, it's uh, fair. The, mind the debate. Mind the debate. Horrifying, horrifying article. Uh, really interesting article that I recommend, but I don't necessarily uh, agree with the conclusion. Although I don't think that the sort of what was stated as the conclusion was the actual intended conclusion. Mm. I think it was one of those I'm trying to make a point pieces. But great piece in the National Observer, of course, the the new national uh, uh, face of the Vancouver Observer, uh, who we've spoken to repeatedly before, called "How Harper Will Win the Election." A very important comment about our voting system and how it works, and and the conservative strategy, uh, which I think needs to be understood if we're going to have any organized. Uh, Resistance to it. Uh, uh, an opinion piece that I thought was re- uh, worth looking at here uh, as well in the Vancouver Observer talking about uh, uh, Premier Clark selling future generations to placate Malaysian oil and gas giant. Uh, that's, again, just something else that'll make your blood boil. Canada's environment minister skips climate summit of the Americas. Uh, we're probably going to do a show where we dig a little bit more into that because um, that was a huge thing that happened. Just finished, I think, yesterday. Um, we'll have to. We'll probably come back to that a little bit more next week was the climate summit of the Americas. Lots of stuff online. Uh, check the website, but we'll get back to it later. And then it uh, looks like we don't have time to actually dig into it here, but I want to just make a brief comment on it. The very last thing here was essentially uh, an article by Laurie Goldstein from the Toronto Sun. Um, he is not a stupid person. He's actually a very smart person, I think. Um, I find him occasionally, in my personal opinion, to be slightly dishonest. Uh, 
But that's not an insult. That's an observation. And it's a subjective opinion. I'm not asserting anything in that. I just, I just don't find him to be the most honest all the time. However, he wrote an article for the Toronto Sun called Elizabeth May Means It. Uh, and right at the beginning of the article, he says that uh, this is not an endorsement of Elizabeth May and then goes on to give what seems to me to be one of the best endorsements of Elizabeth May I have ever read. We don't have any more time to talk about it. Please go to the website and check it out. It will blow your mind. I want to know what our listeners think about that. Please go check it out. Be on the website. That's it for the Green Majority this week. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good Green Week, folks. We'll see you all real soon.